It is mercifully over. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he's Jeremy Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com, and he's at houstonchronicle.com and uh, expressnews.com down in San Antonio. How are you, sir? Do you feel any sense of relief? Yeah, well, that's about as much work as you can fit into one work week. That's for darn sure, right? <laughs> yeah. By the time we got to Wednesday, I had, and people might be surprised, I had already sort of, well, I didn't forget, but it kind of slipped my mind that just a few days before that, the Astros had won the World Series. That's how yeah. much was going on, you know, running around covering this election, which ended with a victory speech in South Texas. We started this campaign in South Texas. We celebrated my primary victory in South Texas. Tonight, we return to South Texas to celebrate my re-election for you being your governor for four more years. Potentially the least surprising outcome of the night, I said right here on this show and in multiple other places, Jeremy. And here's the way I would put this for our listeners because they know I don't make predictions. However, when I say I'm not surprised or I wouldn't be surprised by something, that means I knew that was probably going to happen, but I'm hedging. I'm hedging my bets, right? So so if I'm wrong, just don't worry about that. Don't just forget about it. Don't ask me about that. But if I'm right, I'm here to remind you that you turn to me for clear-eyed analysis, even in times of tumult, confusion, and chaos. Were you surprised by the end result here, a double-digit win for Greg Abbott? Not completely surprised by that. I think mm -hmm. the how it got there is what more surprised me more than anything. It's like as okay. Abbott said in that whole speech, like you know that focus on South Texas actually paid off somewhat for them. You know, it's like usually you know you think of those those counties from Brownsville to Laredo. There's like five counties down there that usually give Democrats a plus hundred thousand vote margin. You know, or oh, yeah. you know, almost two hundred thousand votes at times. This time around, it was about fifty thousand votes you know, mm -hmm. for Democrats. And it's like, so they still won those areas, but it just is not performing like they needed to perform if they have any hope of, you know, taking over the state. Yeah. And those things are not changing on their own. You know, there were so many stories in the New York Times, Washington Post, other places where reporters who do a good job, they, you know, they sort of uh, parachute into those places and they write stories about how Trump won a county down on the Rio Grande. And if I had to, if I had to see one more story like that, I told you I was going to lose yes. my mind. Uh, I think there was some important uh, context missing. If you go all the way back to 2014, at that time when Abbott was running against uh, then Senator Wendy Davis, there were millions of dollars spent on Abbott's behalf in South Texas. And at the time, I remember asking, why are they doing this? I would talk to some of the best Republican political minds and they would say, look, Scott, at some point that, you know, they have to explain this stuff to me. They're all they're all much smarter. They said, look, if you have a race that at some point, you know, you're going to win, which at, there was a point in 2014, believe me, same as this. They knew they were going to win. Uh, they said, look, if you know that, if you know the outcome, you would ask yourself the question, what could you do with your mountain of money to move the ball forward for your party in the future? And what you would do is you would create infrastructure in another part of the state where Republicans may have a chance. And it is South Texas. Um, and if if people in that area were ready to hear messages from Trump and ready to accept arguments from Abbott that's the reason, Jeremy, because that land had been tilled long ago. 
Yeah, and it's, it's incredibly important now because what we've seen in the infrastructural change in Texas politics, and what I mean is like if you look at Harris County and you look at the Blue Spine, that I-35 stretch that I'm always talking about, it's like those two areas, you know, even in this red red-ish cycle, they held blue. And that's new. It's like, you know, if you go back, you know, from you know, 2020, 14, Republicans always won those two areas. Like, it was almost consistent. But, you know, like even 2014, Abbott carried like Harris County and that Blue Spine area. It's like, but not this time. It's like this is the third consecutive cycle where Democrats have, you know, put up margins where they've won those areas. And so mm-hmm. it's like that structurally means that Harris County and the Blue Spine are blue. They're not changing anytime soon, and the Republicans need to find votes elsewhere. That's why being in South Texas is so critical because that helps trim some margins that they can use to balance off what the heck has happened in Harris County. Right. And some folks who follow along with what I, what I do might um, be surprised that I'm giving credit to Greg Abbott. Do you, do you know that of all the organizations in 2020 that were doing work to flip counties in South Texas, the one that was doing nothing was Trump for America. Right. It was all these other Republican organizations yes. that were doing a ton of work there. So, look, there's a lot of national politics uh, in this, in the victory speech uh, that Abbott gave down there. Uh, once again, he talked about the national environment, talked about fighting Washington. And he pointed to the fact that one of the three congressional seats that were targeted by Republicans in South Texas was taken by a Republican. Right before coming out here, the numbers stayed the same, and I think they will stay the same. I'll be able to tell you something that's never been said before. The ground on which you are standing right now is now going to be represented for the first time by an Hispanic Republican woman, Monica De La Cruz. She'll go to Congress, and the first thing she will do is to fire Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House. A lot of national politics. There wasn't a whole lot of specifics about what Abbott's exactly going to do coming up in his next four years, although he did talk about a few things in a vague way. Jeremy, he talked about uh, school choice, which, of course, he's talked about an expanded uh, program, not just including uh, charter schools, which we have now, and also magnet schools, which we have now, but also school vouchers. We'll see a push for that uh, for sure during the legislative session. He, of course, talked about the economy and jobs. But What about the giant budget surplus that the state is expected to have when the legislature convenes in January? We must tap into our $27 billion budget surplus and use that to uh, give our property owners the largest property tax cut in the history of Texas. It's always fun when you stumble on your biggest promise. We'll see what they do on uh, property taxes, Jeremy, because as we've talked about, that has been vague as well. We don't know if it's going to be a homestead exemption increase once again, like was done uh, previously. We don't know if it's going to be maybe writing a check to homeowners across the state and say, hey, here's your rebate. Here, here's what you get back. Of course, when they tried to do that before, it turned out that that would be taxable income. So they decided not to do that and instead would, you know, went with the homestead exemption. Uh, what do you think on this property tax issue? Yeah, well, I spoke with Governor Abbott about this a little bit more directly back in Midland. He and I had one-on-one you know, discussion about it. And he said that, that that possibility exists where they could just send you know checks back to people, do the homestead <laughs> thing, do more of the buyback, uh, you know, with the school taxes. You know, the, the, all that stuff is kind of out there. He clearly hasn't settled on one avenue that he wants to go in, mm-hmm. and so that's going to give some flexibility to the legislature to try to craft something that they want. You know, in addition to what he's asking for. 
Yeah, and we'll talk more about it in future uh, programs, but I would just say this for now. In 2019, so much work was done in that legislative session to reform the school finance and property tax system such that the way to contain property taxes at the local level is for the state to fund the school formulas. And I was talking to Dan Huberty, who is a retiring member, one of the retiring members of the House from uh, Houston, uh, who used to be the public education chairman. And he said, look, that's the way we you would do it. We did this heavy lifting in 2019 to set it up such that that is the way to do it for the state to fund the school finance system. And they have the perfect opportunity to do that with all this extra money in the bank. Now, you heard from Abbott. Now we will hear from Beto. Where was he? He was in his hometown in El Paso. And he talked about how he and his team and his supporters always knew this was going to be very tough. The advantages that they had in in money, in people, in the powers of incumbency and the levers that they could pull in the way that voter registration and just being able to cast a ballot in Texas is a lot harder than it has to be and a lot harder for people who might otherwise be voting for us. And all the challenges that we already had going on in this state, Um, this democracy under attack, a a grid that did not work, women's rights to make their own decisions about their own bodies, um, under attack here more than anywhere else. And, you know, most people would look at that and just say, no thanks. And many did and came to that conclusion. But against all that, at a time when we could be tempted to give in, or to give up, we all decided, we all decided instead to give it our all. And that's what I think distinguishes us and defines us right now. Everything that we could possibly give to this, we gave to this. And I don't mean the candidate and I don't mean the staff. I mean every single person who was a part of this campaign. That's all well and good and the kind of things that you say to your supporters when they show up for a, um, I'm just going to say it this way, for the losers party, right? It's always, it's a very difficult speech to give. I get that. But let me cut to the chase and what the cynics, and I include myself among them, want to know. Is he going to run for office again or is he done with that after three losses in four years? So what is his role going to be going forward? I don't know what form that will take. I don't know what my role or yours will be going forward, but I'm in this fight for life. I'm in this with you. Now, you always say a version of that when you're asked that question, right? You never want to, as a politician, close the door on anything, Jeremy. But I do have to say that I thought that, and sometimes I think that some of the headlines are over the top, but I don't think that in a, in a, you know, in a large sense that newspapers and other media outlets were wrong to ask the question, is he done? At this point, as a candidate, Uh, this is somebody who has been a prolific fundraiser, someone who certainly could have a role in the Democratic Party doing something. Um, But there's only so many times you can lose before you can't get rid of that smell on you. Right. You know, politically. Right. Then people think, oh, wow, he's lost so many times he can't do it again. Yeah. And and that's what made this race. You know, I I have a lot to say about this. I have a whole story going on over this weekend uh, Mm -hmm. in the Houston Chronicle that people should check out. But one of the things about like, you know, this race, like and he he addressed it in that speech. But like this was a really hard race to kind of win. You know, it's like you think I talked to Gilberto Hinojosa, the chairman of the Texas Democratic Party, and he told me like they talked to a lot of other candidates before Beto got in the race and everybody was like a hard no, (laughs) you know, because you're going against an 
incumbent in a Republican year, you know, a Repu- an incumbent with, you know, uh, $40 million. And, and people who have listened to this right. podcast before knows that I, I, I did these numbers and I show that like, you know, 85% of incumbents, governors who run for reelection win. It's like this. It's a very narrow strip, and so you know. Look, Beto convinced himself that he could, you know, be the guy who could pull this thing off, but like mm-hmm. he clearly failed at it. But I don't think his. I don't think his career is over. You know, it's like I, I, some of the stuff I thought was over the top. I think this guy yeah. is going to be around for a while, and I don't think like you know, ten years down the road, he could still run for something. You know, it's like mm-hmm. I, I, I would not close that door because you have to ask your question: Who else is there? Who else do the Democrats have who have has this name ID, who can raise money, who has rebuilt the infrastructure of the party? It's like what they've done with their data analysis and you know their advanced analytics in this campaign, like that material is going to be worth a ton to everybody going forward in the Democratic Party if they have any hope of winning, right? And so like he has the keys to all that. So like I, I still think he's you know one of their best candidates. Better, better, you know, whether that's good or not, I don't know. But it's like, Interesting. it tells you a lot about their bench, though. Their bench needs to improve. They need to get candidates who can have that kind of impact. So, yeah, I just, I would, you know, pre, you know, t- warn people, to, you know, look, he clearly is not going to run for anything in the, in the near term. But down mm-hmm. the road, don't be surprised if you see Beto running for something in the future. Well, I mean, and I guess uh, one counter to that would be I didn't expect him to immediately run for president after he lost uh, you know, the Senate exactly. race back in 2018. Then he did do that. I would say one thing to our Democratic listeners in Texas who I think put too much emphasis – and I'll explain this. Some of y'all put too much emphasis on what the Texas Democratic Party – and I mean the, the organization, the TDP – some people to put too much emphasis on that, and they think, well, the TDP – you've seen it all over the place. TDP is a disaster. They're dysfunctional. I mean if you think that the RPT, the Republican Party of Texas, is a model of functionality, you've never attended one of their meetings. The, 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 the state Republican executive committee um, is entertainment at its finest in, in politics. I've been covering the SREC for many years, um, and I'm bringing this up to say this. You can't put it all on the TDP. You can't pull it, put it all on Chairman Hinojosa, uh, which is what a lot of Democrats want to do. They'll, they'll say, look, this is Beto's fault. This is the chairman's fault. The, the Republican Party of Texas as an entity has had to be backstopped by a bunch of other groups right over the years. I mean, I, I, I have covered the Republican Party of Texas for about 20 years, going all the way back to uh, the chair was uh, Tina Benkiser at the time. We, we probably have three listeners who know who I'm talking about, all the way back to Chair Bankheiser. And there were times when the party was completely broke. There were times when it was completely dysfunctional. And these were times when Republicans continued to win all over Texas, right? It's been 30 years or so since Republicans were not in that position. There are other groups that sprang up. Uh, other Republicans with money stepped in and said, okay, well, if, if the RPT is a disaster, then we're going to form something else. They have the Associated Republicans of Texas is one of those groups. You now have uh, several other groups that have popped up uh, to try to prop up Republicans. There's this Project Red Texas they're doing down in uh, in South Texas, uh, which is being run by, I think, one of the former aides to uh, Senator Cornyn uh, down there convincing people to switch parties or trying to do that in South Texas. You can't just put it all on one organization and say, wow, they're a dumpster fire and therefore we can't win. That's not good enough. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I, I put up something on, on Twitter about this, but like, you know, 
look at what ju- what just happened. When I, I look, I covered a lot of national politics over the years in Ohio and you know Florida and New York, whatever. Uh, but looking at the map, who would have thought that Texas's governor's race would be closer than swing states like Florida and Ohio? It was. Mm-hmm. And what's amazing is the presidential was almost the same. During the presidential with Joe Biden, his his numbers were right. closer here than they were in Ohio, and almost closer, you know, than it was in Florida. It is pretty neck and neck. But who would have thought that? If you had told me that, you know, in you know, 2012, if you had told anybody in presidential politics, you know, that what we just ha- watched, you know, la- you know, this week and two years ago would happen, mm-hmm. nobody would have believed that. Texas is more in play than Ohio and Florida right now. And that just has to throw a shockwave into Texas, into national politics going, mm-hmm. wait a minute. It's like, why would we put money into Ohio and Florida? And these Texans keep saying they're onto something. Maybe mm-hmm. we reconsider that. So just like going forward, it's just going to be interesting to see how the party addresses, you know, a, a, a political environment where governor's races, even in bad years for Democrats are better mm-hmm. in Texas than Ohio. I just never thought right. I was ever going to say that. Yeah, but this was no red wave, and we'll talk a little bit more about that here in a little bit. Uh, I do think it's worth saying that, hey, this is just a normal election in Texas. It's a normal midterm with a Democratic president in Texas. Republicans at the statewide level are going to run the board. And we have this question from social media, uh, someone asking uh, about this, saying, look, there were 41 Texas House districts, and this is the, the state house, of course. Texas House districts had no Democratic challenger to the Republican, basically asking me why that is. Here's the other thing. As far as legislative races, this happened right after redistricting, yes. right? This, this is an election. This is a redistricting cycle, and those partisan uh, lines have been drawn. And so Republicans are going to win in certain areas. Democrats are going to win in certain areas. That wasn't true back in 2018, right? We were coming to the end of the redistricting cycle in 18 and 20. And what happens with those, and I'll, I'll get professorial for a second, after the districts are optimized for partisan advantage, which is what they do in redistricting. They basically say, hey, look, these are Republican areas. Those are Democratic areas, like I said. Um, Those lines can only last for so long in the form that they originally were intended as far as the communities that are inside the lines, they change. What happens over time? People move, people die. In Texas, you have a thousand people moving to Texas every day and people are moving to the urban centers. They're moving to the suburbs as well. And that's why you see so much change in places like Williamson County, Hayes County, those places along the Blue Spine you're talking about, also in Fort Bend County, Denton County, Collin County, and all those places that we talk about all the time. And so once you get to the end of the day, and those lines are drawn every 10 years, of course, once you get to the end of the decade in 2018 and 2020, right before they draw those lines again, that's when the minority party has the best shot at winning some of those seats because the communities have changed And they're not exactly set up the way they were 10 years before. So that's when you'll see a lot of investment. So remember, and we talked about this part on the last show, in 2018, there was a concerted effort by Democrats nationally and at the state level to try to win seats. It wasn't just Beto all on his own, right? Now, he did. He helped a lot of those candidates. But if you think about it, once all the, you know, the dust had cleared, you had 12 new Democrats in the Texas House, two new Democrats in uh, the congressional delegation, and two new Democrats in the Texas Senate. And in 2020, you had tens of millions of dollars spent to try to flip Texas House seats. That didn't, and there was no effort like that this time around. I think in, in 2018, that was probably the most television that I've ever seen for Democrats in this state because you had all those congressional districts that were targeted by the DCCC. Nothing like that was happening this time around. 
Well, and, and look at what that was doing to Harris County, right? You know, the, the biggest county in Texas, right? Uh, all those congressional races, you had three that were just absolute barn burners, you know, and there was probably $20 million of TV ads just yeah. in the last two weeks of that, you know, helping get the vote out and to turn out. So like the entire atmosphere in Harris County, you know, and remember in that year, we had a record number of people running for Congress just in Harris County, like in those nine congressional districts, it was like off the charts, mm-hmm. like how many people were running. Uh, I can't remember the exact number, but it was insane. But but it, it, it was, was a, a different yeah. energy. It, it speaks to what you're talking about, though. There was this different kind of energy before the redistricting. The redistricting mm-hmm. happens. What did we yep. have this time? We had no competitive seats really in Harris County. Everything was easily won by one part or the other. And so they just weren't even in the game. You know, so you didn't see at Lizzie Fletcher, you know, who, you know, is in the seventh congressional district. She ran a couple of ads, but you didn't see anything from anybody else. It's not like Dan mm-hmm. Crenshaw needed to spend, you know, his, you know, $14 million to win reelection. Like he could just hold on to that if he wanted to. Speaking of Harris County. I have settled on this, that the Harris County judges race was the most fascinating race in Texas this year for so many reasons. I mean, it's like a, in some places it would be like a U.S. Senate race. I mean, they probably, between the candidates themselves and the third party allied organizations for each of the candidates, they probably spent $20 million there, you know, battling this out. I'm I'm probably pretty close to right with that. And we'll see how it all shakes out in the final reports. Um, Alex Mueller fell just short of beating the Democratic incumbent, Lena Hidalgo. The Republican conceded the next day, which I have been giving Republicans all over the country credit for just conceding, right, when, when it doesn't work out because the, the supporters of former President Trump wouldn't want them to do that. And if you look at the lack of a red wave, a lot of that has to do with anywhere Trump inserted himself, things didn't go that well for the candidates, except for Ohio. I think if, if, you, if you look at J.D. Vance as the example, the one example of a Trump-backed candidate that did great, that'd be it. But you'd be hard-pressed to find any other examples around the country. So in this uh, in this race for county judge, it had national uh, you know, overtones as well, right? I mean, the, the big issue that Republicans thought they could take out Hidalgo over was crime. It, this whole idea of defunding the police, soft on crime, letting murderers out of jail and all the sort of stuff that you saw in these ads and these text messages to voters and everything. And I will say Mueller, the Republican, she had some pretty great commercials. This was one of the ones where she was introducing herself to voters. My name is Alexandra Mueller. I've worn a lot of different hats in my life. Spent five years in the Army bomb squad. I spent the last six years structuring billion dollar deals for energy companies. So why run against Lena Hidalgo for Harris County judge? Well, never been one to back down from a challenge. Crime is out of control in Harris County, and I can fix it. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. (laughs) Then she walks out to a crowd of her adoring fans, and that kind of ad was being run for months in Houston with at least about $10 million behind it. And then, as I said, an additional four or five million by other groups that were trying to take out Hidalgo, right? And Hidalgo's campaign throughout the entire thing, and some of my friends in Houston won't like me saying this, but this is just my read of it. And I'll say it this way too. I'll say, hey, I wasn't there every day. I'm watching it from Austin, but but this is what I was saying. But I was talking to people in Houston all the time about this. And a lot of folks, including some Democrats, agree with this. Hidalgo's campaign was so slow to respond to a lot of this stuff. I mean, in a serious way. And, and certainly in a paid media kind of way, you saw the ad that she ran right after early voting was over with, which was a really good ad on television. Hidalgo talks about growing up down in Columbia 
you know, as being a kid there and her parents bringing her here. And a lot of it having to do with the kind of corruption that goes on in that part of the world. And, the, and she's making this case, and I thought this is a really great ad. She's making this case that we're here in Texas and in Houston specifically because we care about your family. And we, because we care about taking care of public safety and all of that. I was born in Colombia during the drug war, so I know firsthand what happens when government leaders answer to criminals instead of their people. It's why my parents moved us here and why as your Harris County judge, I fought for the highest law enforcement budget in history to hire more police officers and raise their pay to keep weapons away from dangerous people. The work is not done, but I want you to know there's nothing more important to me than keeping your family safe. How close was this race, Jeremy? I'm looking at the vote total here. It was just over 1 million votes cast in Harris County, and it was down to about 16,000 votes between yeah. them, right? Less than a percentage point on, on election day. You're looking at the returns coming in from Harris County, and it's a, you know, it's a tradition in Texas to wait up late to see the results come from Houston because it always takes a while. Uh, but in the end, Hidalgo was victorious, and at her uh, victory event – uh, she gave a speech where she was basically shouting at her detractors. To the naysayers who think I'll be intimidated by conspiracy theories or by bullying or by political prosecutions. Bring it on! Bring it on! And you have to love this because it's Houston. It's nasty and it's colorful. Uh, she had to talk a little trash on Mattress Mac. She had almost $10 million in the bank. And she had a U.S. senator. And she had a furniture salesman. <laughs> you can't win them all. Can't win all the bets. I believe, Jeremy, that either Judge Hidalgo or someone on her team must listen to this show. Because didn't I say a version of that earlier, that the only thing you should say in response to Mattress Mac, uh, this is pretty much verbatim, I, I said, yeah, his bets never pay off, right? And, until the World Series. So he kind of broke even this time, or his, his political bet didn't pay off. <laughs> yeah. uh, but what, what was that check? I said, he tweeted it this morning, I think, Mattress Mac at Caesars Palace, because he made the uh, he made the bet with Caesars uh, Sports, uh, a $30 million payoff for the Astros to win the World Series. Now, if you think about the way this race played out, I would say this about Harris County. It is very difficult now for Republicans to win there. They spent, like I said, $15 million. They went after her hammer and tong with everything. I mean, you talk about a campaign where they brought everything out but the kitchen sink. And then put the kitchen sink in there, too, and threw that as well. Um, they came at her with everything in a midterm for a Democratic president. And guess what? It still didn't work out. And, and, and say this, too. I'll say this, too. With her campaign not being that great, and they still didn't beat her, right? And so I think you go to a presidential year, uh, you know, two years from now in Houston, Anything locally is very much out of reach for Republicans. Uh, of course, you'll still see any statewide. Uh, do we have a Senate race next time? Yes. You, you, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll see Republicans uh, mining for votes in Houston. There's lots of Republican votes there, of course. Uh, but as far as a local race, man, I don't know why they would try it again. I think they would retreat. 
Yeah, I think this was that's a great point, because I think this was the exclamation point on like how Harris County has finally flipped solidly. Right. You know, it's like we saw it happen, you know, look, in just in 2014, I always go back to this. But Greg Abbott, Dan Patrick, Ted Cruz, all those guys, John Cornyn, they all won Harris County all the time. It's like it wasn't until these last few years. So you saw 2018, it all goes away from them. Then in 2020, it all goes away from again. In 2022, like you said, like they threw everything at, you know, Hildago and she's in this, you know, environment where crime is up, which is a huge driving issue. Right. And yet she survives this thing. And that all tells you that the fundamentals of Harris County politics have changed. It's like it's not going back Republican. It's finally acting like other big blue cities in the rest of the country. You know, it's a diverse place where a lot of, you know, Hispanics and you know black voters are now participating in much higher levels than we saw, you know, even, you know, six, seven years ago. Right. And so that just changes the entire fundamentals of Harris County. And then that changes the fundamentals of the state because Harris County is just so big. You know, it's like the, the years of blowouts, you know, where, you know, Wendy Davis can lose by 20 points is probably behind us at this point because Harris County is just too mm-hmm. big. You know, if it's going Democratic all the time, you just can't run up the same kind of margins as Republicans used to be able to do. They have to get used to this world, you know, at worst to be in this like 15 to 10 percentage point range uh, mm-hmm. or it gets worse from here where like things get tighter for them. Yeah. And of course, Democrats in Houston had sort of a break the glass moment, uh, an emergency moment. Uh, They turned to one man to try to turn out folks in Houston. And I think you were a little surprised by this because this is a person who doesn't necessarily have any real ties to Houston. But listen to who it is. Houston, what's up? It's your boy, Big Snoop Deal, Double G. And I'm joining Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee and getting all of you to get out there and vote. So he's saying that people in Houston need to go vote, Jeremy. And and you uh, had a story up about Snoop Dogg and why he was even involved in Houston politics. Yeah, it was kind of weird because it, it came so late on Tuesday when people are already voting. So it's like the limited audience. Like I kept thinking, like, man, if Snoop Dogg had come into like Sunnyside, say, you know, for a rally, mm-hmm. you know, a week and a half ago when early voting was underway, or It'd be like, yeah. Yeah, well, how cool would that have been in terms of trying to help get you know some people to remember this in election coming and all that kind of stuff? But he does basically like a YouTube uh, short video that hardly probably anybody ever saw, <laughs> except right. for you know me they and a few other story. people involved. Yeah, it. yeah mm-hmm. exactly. It's like, and so it's just like, uh, yeah, he clearly wasn't going to move the needle that late in the game. And I, again, I don't. He never mentioned Beto O'Rourke, never mentioned Lena Hildago, never mentioned any other. Just mentioned Sheila Jackson Lee who was in an absolutely safe <laughs> re-election. So. so didn't mention Beto, you said? No, did not mention Beto or Lena Hildago either. No, 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 no. He didn't. All right. Senator Cruz was talking about, you like that? Senator yes, Cruz was talking it. about <laughs> the, uh, the lack of a red wave. How often did we hear from him and from other people that a red wave was coming all across the country, right? Uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick said a version of that, right? That the, a red tsunami was coming, that, that there was a real red alert, uh, that, 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 that basically the coast was going to be wiped out by this, by this red wave. And if you were somebody who watched Fox News, Fox News Channel, you would think on Tuesday that you were living in an alternate reality because this is what led up to Tuesday. This is the kind of thing that was being said by Cruz and others 
every single day, not just for the last few weeks, but for months. Sean, we're going to see a red tsunami. Red tsunami grows. That means red tsunami. And we're not just going to see a red wave. We're going to see a red tsunami. Poverty, joblessness, critical race theory, crazy gender ideology in our schools. We are going to see a red tsunami. And lastly, your prediction for tonight. I think we're going to have a red wave. I think it's going to be maybe bigger than anyone thought. On Tuesday, we will be part of a big red wave that says enough is enough. Up next, Elon Musk ready to ride the big red wave. Elon Musk tweeted massive red wave. Massive red wave. Massive red wave. Massive red wave. You're about to see a red wave that makes day after tomorrow look like nothing. That's going to be responsible for the red wave. I think the red wave that's coming is going to be like the elevator doors opening up in The Shining. That's uh, Joe Rogan there at the end talking about The Shining, which is a really good reference, by the way. <laughs> to, if, you know, what, a, what a classic. Um... So here's the deal. When that just did not happen, there was a little bit of a meltdown on Fox News. Some of their guests even said that Democrats winning is bad for Democrats. That, uh, and I, I wish I was making that up. But listen, see if you can follow this logic. I can't believe John Fetterman won. This is, in fact, bad for the Democrats. They're going to misread this. It's like, oh, we won. Joe Biden was not punished. This morning, had there been a big red wave, everybody would be going, blame Joe Biden. Can't say that the, now. You can't say that right now. It's still a win for pro-lifers. This new generation is totally brainwashed. When we just owned the libs, we, we didn't win those races. This is not a surprise. We knew it would be extremely tight. Forget the red wave, the red tide, whatever it was, it doesn't matter at this point. They're always going to spin things against us. Single women and voters under 40 have been captured by Democrats. So we need these ladies to get married. He says, we need these ladies to get married. All, it, the problem is all these single ladies. <laughs> all the single ladies, all the single ladies. Uh, that's the problem, yeah. right? So I, I actually, I think I think those women probably want to stay single, the ones he's talking about. Uh, th these are independent women, independent-minded. And, you know, and you know what? Probably, and here's the point I would make about it, Jeremy, in a roundabout way, is those independent-minded women – probably would be open to voting for Republicans if one key thing had not happened this summer, right? Yep. They, they, they were so, I talked to so many Republican women who said they were furious about the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And I think that when you looked, and there's been a lot written about this and said uh, this week, if you looked at the public polling on the abortion issue, where we were at with all of that, a lot of the polling seemed to indicate that it had faded as an issue. And I, I think a lot of these folks just don't understand that once a woman is mad about something, she's not going to stop until something's done about it, right? And so one of the, one of the key data points I looked at for Texas uh, in the early voting, and I don't have the full numbers on this for the entire election, but in the early voting, um, women were outvoting men in every one of the top 25 most populous counties in Texas. Now, I don't know what that means for elections going forward. I mean, this is a very specific time frame where women are angry about you know these issues. It was, somebody said that it doesn't matter. I'm trying to remember who said it. Uh, but somebody said it doesn't matter that it wasn't necessarily young women who were not voting. That's what a lot of uh, the, the Democrats were counting on, right, was that young women would come out. Um, but if you think about it, this, this person was saying that um, a lot of the older women are the ones who went through the fight when Roe versus Wade happened originally. I mean, it's a, in the in the, um, you know, in, 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 in history, it's not all that long ago that Roe versus Wade was decided. And then in a short, you know, again, in the in the time frame we're talking about, 
50 years later for it to be overturned is something that all those people who went and may have gone through some of that fight back in the day, women who are 65, 70 years old and who are voters didn't like that. So why did the Democrats do better than expected? Well, Senator Cruz has an answer for that. Because for two years, they've governed as liberals. They've governed as whacked out lefty nut jobs. And you know what that did? That excited their base. That excited a bunch of young voters that came out in massive numbers. Because when you actually stand for something, your base gets excited. There's a lesson for Republicans to learn, which is when we have a majority next year, we damn well better act like it and use it. I'm not sure if he's making the point that he thinks he's making. That He's, he's saying that, that the Democrats did well because they governed as liberal Democrats. Now, I get I, I understand what he's saying. He's saying that, hey, look, if if we win and we get the majority, then we need to do things that excite our base. Right. As Republicans, we need to govern, as Cruz would say, as bold conservatives uh, on his podcast, The Verdict, which I know you're a big fan of, Jeremy and Maya as well. Cruz sounded really dejected about this. Don't look at me like that. Cruz sounded really dejected about this whole thing. He said his wife was very unhappy with him because, remember, he was traveling around on the bus campaigning for different uh, candidates all over the country. And listen to what he described about why Heidi, his wife, was just furious with him. You know Heidi. Yeah, yeah. I've been doing politics now a decade. She lit into me towards the end of that bus tour at a level I've never seen because I had not been home in a long time, I, I, I was on the road doing a rally, doing a rally in Florida with with Corey Mills and, and Scotty Moore. Corey won tonight. Scotty lost. Um, you know, I missed my daughter Catherine's 12th birthday because I was out doing a rally to save this country. Now, that hurts. I hate missing my daughter's birthday. I hate that he missed his daughter's birthday, too. And I mean that. Sincerely, you know, my daughter's 21. She doesn't even live in Texas anymore. I miss all kinds of things. I mean, we'll, we'll spend Christmas where she lives in Philadelphia. I miss my daughter. I don't think I would ever use language like I miss my daughter while I'm, quote, saving the country. Seems a little <laughs> seems a little hyperbolic, Jeremy. Um, but these explanations for why the red wave did not materialize. I, I, look, I think that there are good reasons for it. I mentioned the abortion issue. I also think that some of the punch that Republicans thought the econ- the economic issues would have just didn't materialize either. Uh, that you know the inflation is starting to we're starting to see some positive signs on inflation. The price of gas has come down a little bit, and and of course people are not happy about the price of gas. But when it comes down, they're not as angry about it, of course. But here's the main thing I would say about it, and I'll, I'll, you grade my paper. You tell me what you think. The main thing I would say is that in a midterm. For a Democratic president, which historically should be good for Republicans, and you have an economic situation that has people just worried about even being able to go to the grocery store, when all that's the reality, you should win anyway. So the the Republicans have to be asked this question. Why is it that y'all pushed in so hard on all these culture war issues when you did not have to do that to win, right? The things that would be a, a blueprint for them to win is talk about the economy, talk about crime which has been something very effective for them in the last two election cycles. And instead, look at all this stuff, bans on abortion, banning books, LGBTQ issues. They're talking about drag shows, all this other stuff. And the only answer that I can you know, come up with, this is my guess, 
is that for a lot of these Republicans, it, it just came down to hubris. They thought that because of the economic situation, they were going to win anyway. So they could start thinking about the next election they run in, which is Republican primaries. And for some of them specifically, it's presidential Republican primaries. So they were talking about these things that appeal to that base. Hey, guess what? Memo, you got to run in the election you're in and not the next one. And you see what's happening right now in, in one place where Republicans had a great night. I love this infighting. It was Florida, right? It was a complete blowout in Florida, as you as you noted. In a, in a swing state, DeSantis just does great, right? And immediately, Trump is at his throat. I mean, that, if, if Trump's going to run again, that is already starting, right? And Ted Cruz probably wishes that he was in the middle of that. You know, the, the, Cruz probably wishes he was part of that headline. That's why he was on The View previously. He's got to stay relevant. So you're starting to see the 2024 Republican primary really begin in earnest. And of course, uh, you see where Trump is promoting the fact that he's going to have some big announcement. I can only imagine what it might be. Yeah. And 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 this is where Trump really kind of messed with, I think, a lot of Republicans in this cycle. He was such an undisciplined guy, right? Like he did whatever he wanted, no matter what the rule book was. And then and, and I think too many Republicans thought, well, that helps. That applies to all of us now. We can be completely undisciplined, you know, you know, talk about whatever we want. And but those candidates have been struggling. The national message got totally watered down. I, you know, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but like you got to come back and like the reason why Greg Abbott won and and won so convincingly was because mm-hmm. he was very disciplined in what he was doing. It was like he yeah. always talked about the jobs you have. You know, he talked about the border. Just and focus on those two issues mm-hmm. and leave everything else alone. It's like he touched on things if he had to, but he didn't make it some driving issue. And he does well. Other Republicans did not. And they, right. you know, they did not do well. Right. It's like, so there's kind of a lesson here. I think Greg Abbott's kind of lit a beacon for them. It's like, look, if you're going to get out there in, in big boy politics or big girl politics, it's like, you better come in there with some discipline. Like, know what your message is. Stick to that message. Drive that message home. Talk to the voters. And don't worry so much about Hannity and, you know, Tucker Carlson. Focus right. on the people who are actually going to elect you and what issues are important to them. I think the Abbott campaign did that well. I think the Aurora campaign did that as well as they could have in this environment too. Don't get yeah, me wrong. Yeah, it's tough. Mm-hmm. But I think Ab- if Abbott hadn't been a schooled, disciplined candidate, this oh, is yeah. a different thing. You know, it's like – so yeah, I, I think that's the big takeaway I have. I just can't believe that like the Republicans aren't going to take these majorities or they mm-hmm. might get them. Or, like just right. think about the Senate. Even if yeah. they get the Senate – it's like, well, look at the world we're going to be in. Instead of Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema being in the news all the time, it's going to mm-hmm. be Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski who are oh, basically right. running this country. You the know, Republicans it's just like they, have the opposite. Right. It's it's those folks that who are in are in the middle end yep. up being the ones to make those big decisions in a legislative body like that. And you know that one of the uh, one of the sharpest Republican minds I know, a good friend of mine, on election night sent me the, sent me this message, uh, going right to what you're talking about, and said, "Look, all of Trump world." was either losing or in these very tight races, like I said about, you know, J.D. Vance is basically the exception to that. The fact that someone like Lauren Boebert in Colorado, that her race was even in question. When her district is drawn, I think it was a plus eight, at least, Trump district, right? It's a Republican district, and she was having to struggle to get over the finish line. And I don't know where that stands now. I think they were still counting those votes. So who knows? But but the point yeah, is- Yeah, she's still behind. Oh, no, she's still yep. up by just a hair. Are you looking at it? Okay. Yeah. All right. well, She's so up watch. by 0.35%. Yeah. <laughs> there, there you go. Trump, the, my, my Republican friend said, Trump stokes partisan 
corners, and that's evidenced by tonight. He was talking on Tuesday night in key areas where he inserted himself. And, you know, to your point about Abbott, I mean, think about the things that have been done on his watch that he was proud of during the primary and would have talked about a lot or talked about more than the last six months. A total abortion ban, constitutional carry of firearms, um, the banning of CRT. I mean, he mentioned that in his victory speech, yeah. but was, the, was that a big message in his campaign commercials? No. no, it's what you said. It was the economy and the border, and that's it. And when you're covering these races, dear listener, and the uh, when the candidate is disciplined, uh, it's not that they shouldn't do it, but for us as journalists, it's like being stuck in flypaper. You can't ever move forward. They're just going to talk about the same thing over and over and over and over. I, I, I saw this, uh, this uh, uh, training video that a friend who was a Republican consultant in Houston years ago, he would show this video to candidates to teaching them how to stay on message. And part of the video was uh, an interview with a boxer years ago who had just won a match. And the boxer uh, tells the guy who's interviewing him, he says, I'm giving all the glory to God. And the interviewer says, yeah, but what about, you know, uh, in the sixth round where this happened, blah, 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 whatever. And the, the boxer says, I'm just giving all the glory to God. And he and the reporter, the, the reporter, the sports reporter kept asking questions. And that's all the guy would say was, I'm giving all the glory to God to the point where the interviewer says, look, I don't want you to say you're giving all the glory to God. I want you to just answer my question, which is this. And then he asked another question. And the boxer said, I'm just here to tell you, I'm giving all the glory to God. And that was the, the whole point is you go there to say what you came to say, right? You got the discipline is the thing. And Trump would absolutely be the opposite of that. I, um, before closing out here, and we're going to take next week off, I think that's fair to all of us. I think it's fair, and not just us here on the show. That's fair to you, dear listener. I, I love how a lot of our feedback lately in the last, I don't know, two or three weeks from listeners has been, I cannot stand this election anymore, but I still listen to y'all's show <laughs> because I want to understand it. They'll say, I want to understand what's happening, but I can't take this anymore. So, dear listener, get it. Uh, get it straight. We're, we're tired of it, too. And so we're going to move on to other things in, in a couple of weeks. We'll be off next week and off the week after that because it's Thanksgiving and everybody should just spend time with their family and friends. I do want to mention one of my friends uh, who passed away this week. It was um, yesterday and I got the news and I don't know if I was – Completely shocked he had been in bad health, but somebody who I have known for decades. And when I was a kid, uh, I say a kid reporter, just a cub reporter as a, doing radio in Houston, he, he was one of the guys who would drop everything and explain what was happening in Texas politics to me. And there were Democrats who would do that. There were Republicans who would do that. I think about uh, my friend Royal Messe, who used to be back in the late 80s, was the political director for the Republican Party of Texas. And Royal passed away a few years ago, I think in 2016. And if, if I have any understanding of how Republicans flipped this state from Democratic to Republican, it was through hours of conversation with Royal. That man was so gracious with his time. One of the true political geniuses, not just in Texas, but of the United States. So most people have no idea who I'm talking about with Royal Massey, but he came up with something called Optimal Republican Voting Strength. And this is a system that was used in Texas. It eventually ended being, you know, being it was eventually used in, I think, twenty states. And these were the sort of old South states that were flipping from Democratic to Republican. And Jeremy, in nineteen eighty-eight, 
This is well before any of the kind of micro-targeting that we have now. He was using data and numbers in the late 80s, early 90s to give Republican campaigns information about where they could spend their money and make a difference and move people who had traditionally voted for Democrats over to Republican, right? So when we talk, talked earlier about how these things don't happen on their own, happens through things like that. So that was one of my Republican mentors who I miss a lot. And um, I'm going to miss this guy, one of my Democratic mentors, Harold Cook, who I probably, the first conversation I ever had with him would have been in, I don't know, maybe 2000, 2001, something like that. And again, I'm, I'm a 20, 21 year old kid just learning about politics and, and trying to figure everything out. People ask me, you know, questions about this stuff now as if I really know anything now. And I'm still just learning like all of you. If I ever stop learning, then I should stop this, right? If you ever stop learning, stop doing journalism. He passed away. He had moved to um, Marathon out in far west Texas. And he and Molly Ivins, the legendary columnist, had been very good friends. And in fact, she, um, I believe when she passed away, she uh, left him her home out in Marathon where he spent out, he spent the, you know, his final days. And uh, here's what we posted at Quorum Report. Longtime political advisor and commentator Harold Cook died suddenly at his Western headquarters in Marathon. Not surprisingly, he made it through one last election day. Uh, Harold's first political job going way back to when he worked for uh, State Representative Deborah Danberg from Houston, Texas. Uh, he was from Houston as well. He was he, he uh, I think he went to Bel Air High School. He went on uh, to work closely with Land Commissioner Gary Morrow, Texas Secretary of State John Hanna Jr., and dozens of other elected officials and organizations. Notably, Harold managed the 11 Democratic state senators who broke quorum in 2003 and held out for 46 days in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So you remember it was the, the House Democrats went to, at that time, they, it was, they were fighting a redistricting bill, and the House Democrats went to Ardmore, Oklahoma. A reporter I know uh, named Matt Stiles used to work for the Dallas Morning News. He found he found the Democrats at the Holiday Inn in Ardmore, right? And the Democrats who were there hiding <laughs> at this at this uh, what looked like a Motel Six, they thought he was a Repub They thought my friend, the reporter, was a Republican operative because everybody was trying to find the House Democrats at that time. Legendary stories. If you think that Texas politics is just recently a bare knuckle sport, no, no, this has always been the case. Um, I was thinking about uh, Harold and, and you know, I was just thinking about how we all uh, have mentors. We, you know, if we're any good at what we do, it, it, it didn't happen. You know, I don't know these things just innately. I had to learn them from people. And there was a time when I didn't have the incredible Rolodex that I have now. You know, I mean, if my great strength is I know everyone in Texas politics, whether they like me is a different question, but I know all of them. Right. I can call them up and say, what's up? And, you know, there was a time when that was not true. And I had to rely on people like Harold Cook. And I remember just, just a sense of his humor. He was a funny guy. He would um, he would be gracious, but he'd also kind of have, have fun with you, right, if you asked a question. So I would text him. This is going back to 05 or something. I would text him and say, hey, do you have the cell number for so-and-so? Do you have the phone number for whoever I was looking for? And he would text back and say, yes. Do you have a follow-up question? And <laughs> I would say, I would say, yeah, yes. Can I have it right? So, so then he would give me the phone number. He's just giving me, giving me grief. Um, as my career progressed, you know, several. I remember this happened several years after that. He was looking for somebody's phone number. He thought I might have it, and he texted me, and he said, "Hey, do you have so and so's cell phone number?" And I texted back, and I said. Yes. Do you have a follow-up question, Harold? 
That's great. <laughs> yes. says, I love it. His response, his response to me was, he says, he typed out, oh, he goes, oh, you have been waiting forever to do that. And I was like, yes, I have. I'm, um, I was a little choked up about it yesterday. I know that he had been in um, um, ill health. He had had a stroke back in 20, uh, 2020. Uh, he used to be uh, a frequent um, uh, guest commentator on uh, the local news station here in Austin. And at some point he stopped. He never full. I, I don't think he ever fully recovered from that. Um, and, uh, and passed away uh, out in West Texas this weekend, uh, this week. And uh, last night I, I poured one out at sunset for my, my friend Harold, I'll miss him a lot. If this is your favorite show, it should be. <clears throat> How are you not subscribed to it already? What you should do is tell three friends to also subscribe. And you know how that goes. It's a Ponzi scheme. They all tell three friends to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, however you listen to your favorite podcast. Subscribe at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com. You'll want to watch the headlines there while we take the take a couple of weeks off here from the podcast. And we will see you next time.